If you were to Google the five most stressful things in life, then divorce and family matters would be near the top of the list. However, what would it be like if you could find the best help for your problem and centralize all of those resources in one place? Well, our next guest is Joanna Toch, founder and lead expediter of the Family Law Cafe based in London. Joanna, along with the wonderful Carol Horner, make up the engine that drives the Family Law Cafe and ensures that everything runs smoothly. If you are ready to get a taste of how family law and divorce matters may be dealt with in the future, then we'll be right back after the introduction. Hello and welcome. I'm Clayton M. Coke, and I'm also the host for The Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film, and a favorite single or album, and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at the Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. The Cashflow Show, coming to you from the city of London. Real people, real business, real talk. Hello, Joanna, and welcome to The Cashflow Show. Hello, Clayton. Thank you. I'm pleased that we've actually managed to be able to synchronise diaries and appointments and whatever, because you're a very, very busy lady. Always, always be busy. Love it. (laughs) Sorry if we um, slowed down a bit, but I'm really excited to talk to you. And most definitely excited to talk to you, (laughs) because... I'm intrigued from the very beginning. Obviously, you're, you're from the Family Law Cafe, obviously, the, the idea that you've set up this business. And what's interesting to me is that you describe yourself on your website as the lead expediter. And I like that. That means you're going to get stuff done. But how would you describe your role at the Family Law Cafe to our audience? Well, Family Law Cafe was my idea. And I'm I describe myself as someone who has a lot of ideas and I think a lot of people do. We don't always apply them, but this is one that I really wanted to see through. And I got Carol on board, met her running a supermarket and said, you're the person. She said, no, 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 I don't know anything about law. And so I said, that's perfect for me. I want you to help me make law into a purchase and that we will give that service online. And that's what we've been doing. Excellent. And what I find interesting is, is that your idea of commoditizing or I think commoditizing is the wrong word, but basically personalizing and packaging a very difficult concept that is law because it stretches for many areas, across as many boundaries, but it causes a lot of people confusion. Do you feel that by taking that approach, you've tried to demystify something which gives a lot of people anxiety? I think that your first word, as is usual, the first thing we think of is right. I think I am commoditizing law. I've been a family law barrister for 32 years. I think what I have a talent for is taking very complex sets of papers. You might have a thousand pages, but as a barrister, you need to simplify that down. And I also come from a business background. You know, after doing this for a while, I thought, how can we do this better? 
and I want to give more people access to top quality legal advice at a fair price, online services seem the way to go because you're reducing your overheads, but you're still getting the quality of advice. And this is what people need. So with Family Law Cafe, I did it for Family Law because that's what I know about. But I think that you need to keep the personal touch. So I've tried to give a new system. So we're keeping overheads down, we're keeping quality high and you get a personal service. So you can still make phone calls. You're not left on your own. And my website is nothing about, here's a bunch of lawyers, you choose one. How on earth could anyone choose when they've probably never been through a divorce before? So we will look after you and we'll give you all of that care and love all the way through. I always say to Carol, we're just going to love them through this. We're going to take them through, find out where their problem is, find out where they want to go, love them through, give them everything they need. And yes, in the end, giving advice is a commodity and it needs to be correctly packaged. And that's a big old task. So I think your word was right. I'm trying to commoditize law, but in a way that works for people, not using artificial intelligence or bots or anything like that. Want real people there to help you when you need help. So that's what I'm offering. I love the expression, love them all the way through the process. I mean, it's not <laughs> quite my experience after the time that I've been in the legal profession. I didn't think anybody loved me particularly, but <laughs> <laughs> but I do get your point because obviously dealing with family law and family matters, these are quite emotionally intense situations for all the people concerned. That's right. So that's why I've split it up because as a lawyer, I've always thought of myself as very task focused. You know, I get a set of papers and slice my way through them quite quickly. And that side is actually quite simple to me as a lawyer. It might be difficult for other people, but for lawyers, this is what we're trained to do. So I'd like to split that up. So the lawyer does that part. This is an emotional time. You know, it's not just about a set of papers or facts and figures. It's about you know how a wife might feel if the husband walks out of his job that that may be very frightening and I give that example because once when I was working within a solicitor's practice mm -hmm. I was sitting having tea with my children and at the back gate the lady had found my address and came to my house I think it was about eight o'clock in the evening and said I'm so sorry I had to find you to let you know my husband's left his job and I remember thinking mm, you know could this have waited I brought her in <laughs> I thought oh the kids are sitting and we're like okay and just gave her that say it's okay you know we can deal with it. it's okay so I know that people need that they need that personal touch and that's why I have an online system they can put that down even if it's in the middle of the night or they can make phone calls into the hosting team and those are the people who would do you know give them that love and hugs and all the way through and then let legal know hey husband's lost his job it was kind of all we need to know but it's really important that people, that they get everything. They get the top legal advice and they get the care because you know, I don't think anyone wants to go through a divorce. It's an awful time. Of course. We know that. Of course. So you mentioned earlier that you are a barrister and you've been a barrister for 32 years, I should say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When did your legal journey begin? Well, I remember being a bit bored, you know, it, you know when I was a child watching daytime TV with my best friend Suzanne. I always did well at school. I was good at English. I used to write lots of prep plays and with my other best friend and we'd 
get all the kids to perform them. So it was a lot of that. My mother put me into acting school. So I was at Saturday acting school and I was watching the, there was a television program called Crown Court. I think I was about 10 years old. I was watching that. There were a lot of women on this program. I thought that's something I can do. Oh my um, God. <laughs> do you know so, something? I watched yeah. exactly the same program and that's what, <laughs> that was one of the programs that inspired me to get into the law. There you are. Same program. Because you can be it. Yeah. What was fascinating about Crown Court was that it was actually very well done for its time because it was a Crown Court trial over five days and all the procedure, all the processes were the same, except that effectively what happened was, was that the scenarios and the stories were fictionalized quite heavily. But on Friday, you had the verdict. And, you know, it was it was it was quite an intense TV program. I have no idea why someone doesn't bring it back. Maybe they will now, but I don't know if you know the story behind it, which I found out just a few years ago. I was absolutely stunned by this, that it was written by a woman barrister and her, I think either her husband or her partner, who was who was someone who'd been sent to prison, subsequently oh. got cleared. She'd represented him. She had a romance with him, was thrown out of her chambers, and she was one of the first women barristers. There weren't very many at that mm. time. So she was writing this stuff in the 70s. So that's what they did. They went to, to write this stuff. She was thrown out of chambers. She couldn't practice. That's where it came from. And guess what? When I was watching that, I was thinking there were women doing this. That's the reason I followed that, because as I've said, I was I was in stage school. And I remember another thing. I was terrible, at, terrible at acting, but I do, used to do these bit parts in films and whatever. So I remember thinking, oh, I'd love to be a film director. And my next thought was, yeah, but women don't do that. And this, we have to remember this a long time ago. So I love the fact that this was one of the pioneering barristers mm. who was actually excluded from practice and look at the difference she made in the end look at the legacy it kind of makes gives me goosebumps actually and you remember it too of course most definitely it really it was that program crown court and another program which is more americanized which was a program called petrocelli oh yes oh <laughs> <laughs> you remember it. I don't think I was so into that because that was a bit too, you know, US. But, you know, I do remember Petrocelli. Oh, yes. God, I loved that. I loved it. And what I loved about Petrocelli, which is fantastic for me, was that I loved the fact that each, each episode was effectively always the same. Mm -hmm. And at least halfway, two thirds of the way through every story, you found that the client that Petricelli, who was the attorney defending this person who's been accused of murder, you would find that the fact is they were actually at the murder scene, which they conveniently, matter-of-factly, forgot to tell him, <laughs> which always threw a completely different spin on the, um, uh, on the proceedings. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, I see. I didn't know this about you, and obviously, you didn't know this about me. So, obviously, right. we're learning. So, this is we're learning. <laughs> amazing. So, but there's also something else that I didn't know about you. So, I obviously do some research for this show, as you probably can tell. But I never knew that you were an Olympian and world medalist in rowing. <laughs> yeah, Man. yeah, that was yeah, yeah, all my life. I, ne I nearly mm -hmm. fell off my seat. I didn't realise that at all. That was so. The question that I want to ask you: 
were you involved in law and rowing at the same time or did you pick up law after you finished with rowing? Okay, so the... It was all kind of, this is the order of things. I suppose looking back, you know, everyone thinks their own home life is just like everybody else. I, I was kind of aware it was a little bit different. My father was, when he was young, he was a champion boxer. He was heavyweight champion of Britain, aged 18. So, you know, spectacularly amazing. But way before I was born, he was 30 when I was born. So he stopped, he turned professional, did I think about six fights as a heavyweight professional, boxed in front of 40,000 people, you know, had a following and all in the newspapers and, and I grew up seeing the ABA Lonsdale belt you know and all the cups and medals and the scrapbook and I would sit there just as a kid looking through this stuff he never spoke about it but everyone gave him that respect and he was a very successful businessman and clearly a powerful figure mm -hmm. um, and had that standing as a champion athlete he always and he always did sport every day and so I grew up with my father playing squash, water skiing. This was just part of life that we were, you know, as kids, we'd be on a beach waiting for him to come back after a ski race. And his best friend, Eddie, his daughter, Susan, you know, we would be there as kids. And so it was just normal for us as girls to be, you know, sitting in a speedboat you know where our mothers were on the beach or whatever and we'd be dashed out with our dads for eight hours in a boat so I had that upbringing and that background although he I don't think he I was a third child he didn't really expect or notice what I was doing so I got into rowing when I was age 16 before that I'd I skated, then I was a swimmer, I played squash, always doing something. We lived by the river and I used to spend a lot of time in boats just playing around in them. And my mother said, oh, look, they're on the river, you know, it looks very pretty. Why don't you go along? She wasn't sporty at all, but she just thought it looked a fun thing to do. So I started rowing age 16 and I really, I was just incredibly lucky. I was in a club, an all women club with really good people there. And because I had that background in sport, I was lucky enough to be in a crew we went to the junior world championships when i was 17 mm -hmm. and then at 18 um two of them were still juniors and so two of us just thought we'll, we'll have a go at the olympic squad and because i think we were fearless and just had no cares i was still at school i was doing my a levels i was in the olympic squad i expected to be thrown out of it and put in the under 23 squad and just because i had a really good technical background had a good coach and I just took every opportunity. I scraped in as, you know, bow in the eight and went off to the Moscow Olympics aged 18. Ooh. So <laughs> it was, I was doing it at school. So I did this stuff before university. And in fact, I applied for Oxford and I just put, this is how naive I was. I just put Keeble College. I thought they do a lot of rowing. Of course, that was me men's rowing interviewed by three dons who just you know were smoking pipes and looked at this you know I went to a state school so I had no my parent my father left school at 13 my mother at 15 so we had no background in going to university higher education my brothers didn't go so I had no idea I only found out later I did pass the exams for Oxford but they just looked at me as if what you know what are you doing here but I was lucky enough that King's College London liked the look of me and where well, they just gave I, everywhere rejected me except for one university college King's and they said yeah come here so I went to study law at King's 
but I had a year out before that. So by the time I got to Kings, I was in the squad. I was training for the 84 Olympics and I took out a year whilst I was doing my law degree. So the whole rowing thing was underway before university. And whilst I was there, I was, you know, Joe the rower with the kit bag <laughs> coming in, you know, a bit late for lectures. So <laughs> it was a part of my university time. And then finally, I took a year out mid-degree, spent, went to Los Angeles, um, and then I picked up the the law degree. And then I did a sabbatical year and worked for the university, for University of London um, newspaper. So I was doing that. So rowing to me was something I was catapulted into. <laughs> um, I think probably the reason you didn't think I rowed, probably most people think rowers, women rowers at least six foot and I'm not as big as that and I just took my opportunities as I got them and later on I went down to a lightweight and I then was really successful as a lightweight and I carried on till I was 31. So all of this stuff was going on through my law degree, through bar school and at one stage I left to be a law lecturer because obviously the demand of training meant that when I was a pupil and doing trials mm -hmm. you know it wasn't really compatible so it worked in well I mean you know it wasn't always easy but the two things were going on at the same time. So you're in a great position now you're rowing rowing quite successfully studying law and everything's going in the right direction. What's it like for you going from university, rowing, and then to be at the bar? It was all happening at the same time. You know, I was doing Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games. I went out to New Zealand for a year. I came back and I didn't qualify as a barrister until I was 28 because you know, I was mixing up the law degree and training. And you have to remember that then you didn't do it professionally. So I was studying and working as well as training and competing. And that obviously meant that, you know, time was in short supply. So after I qualified in, when I was 28, I got into very good chambers, chambers of Anne Goddard QC. I was doing criminal law. And I'll be honest, because as we've discovered, I knew about being a barrister from Crown Court. I didn't even think there was any other barrister when I went, you know, and studied law. So I always wanted to be a criminal defence barrister with my wig and gown. I did that for eight years. So I went to that chambers and I was still training. And in that year, 1989, I got my silver medal and I then had the opportunity to work as a law lecturer. So I left the bar for three years. Right. I cried every night, you know, <laughs> at the weekends because my biggest dream had been to be a successful barrister. I'd got there, I was in the top chambers. And I had to decide, did I want to go and try and get the gold medal? I got the silver and I thought I have to do that. And then we just had a bad race and came forth. We didn't get the gold medal, even though we, we'd won European Championship, all sorts of things. Sometimes, you know, it just doesn't all, all work. <laughs> so I then did a civil pupillage and that's when I started doing, I did other work, but including family. And I got, I stopped rowing. Um, I tried out for the Barcelona Olympics. Uh, I didn't get into the team, mostly because I was perceived as being lightweight rather than open weight. I thought, okay, we need, I need to concentrate on, you know, <laughs> just on law now. 
I then did a mixture of family law and crime and eventually specialised in family. By that stage, I was married. I had children. I think I was sort of cruising with my work. I was doing good work. I probably wasn't pushing myself as much because when you have young children, you know, that's another job in itself, isn't it? Of course, without a doubt. So the children kind of took over from the the rowings. I stopped when I was um, 31, when I got married, and then through my 30s was working as a barrister, bringing up my children, um, and then into my 40s. So the years seemed to, you know, tick past and enjoying what I was doing. But I found I was slightly dissatisfied, you know, after after a while about the fact that I would be doing cases for people and then I would think, wow, what if they'd had advice earlier and they could have saved a lot of money? And I just felt that they weren't getting the best. The more I learned about everything about the system, you know, I worked in solicitor's offices for part of the time. I trained as a mediator. I worked as a barrister. I just wanted to know everything about family law. I just thought this system isn't really good enough for the paying public. And I just grew more and more dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. And I think when my daughter was, I think she was about 14, my son was about 16. I said to my daughter, I'm just going to stop this. It's just, you know, it's just, I'm not enjoying it. I'm going to open a cafe. I'm going to get people down to talk about law. That's going to be a lot more fun. And I kind of had that conversation. Of course, I got up the next day and was, you know, off in court again. But that stuck in my mind. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, I then thought I want to do this differently. I started working in sole practice, a lot of direct access, which means the public instruct you directly without a solicitor. Exactly. I mean, I'm going to stop you there because I I think the concept of direct access may be unfamiliar to Mm -hmm. people who are not necessarily in the law. Basically, once upon a time, and especially for our American listeners, we have a system of solicitors and barristers. And a solicitor doesn't mean what you think it means in America. So let's put that thought out of your mind. Because what it necessarily means, a solicitor is like a general practitioner and a barrister is like um, a surgeon, somebody who specialises. I think that would be correct. Would that be a best way to describe it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's like a G- yeah, like your local GP, the person who has an overview and prepares the case as a solicitor. Exactly. And the barrister is a trial attorney. I correct. Think, correct. Yeah, that would be a, a, mm-hmm. a good mm-hmm. way of describing it. So ultimately, the bottom line is before back in the deep, dark, distant days, you as an individual person couldn't walk off the street and approach a barrister. That was taboo. It was forbidden. Mm -hmm. Couldn't do that. You had to go to a solicitor and your solicitor was the middle man, middle woman, middle person or fence, whichever way you want to look at it. (laughs) And that person person allowed you access to the barrister. But then that changed. And then the concept of direct access was invented, or if it probably had already existed and then that allowed people to actually approach certain lawyers directly in order to develop client uh, provide a relationship with them and I suppose that's the area that you're talking about how you managed to start to develop your your business that's right so when my children were younger it got to a stage where it was really difficult to practice as a barrister which as you said is a referral profession and you're literally sent to all different courts all the time and I wanted to have a little bit more control so I was married to a solicitor at the time and he had a business so 
we work together and I would drop the children at school. I would do that work in our, our business and then collect them. And it was better to do that. And so then I worked for another solicitor's firm and, the, you know, there's a regularity of hours, even though I was still a barrister, but I was customer facing. So I was going from being the barrister who presents the case to the judge or the, or the magistrates uh, with the instructions of the solicitor. Then I was taking the customer's instructions. And then lots of time when I worked in solicitor's offices, I was doing the whole thing from beginning to end, meeting the customer at the beginning, the client at the beginning, doing their case, finishing it off, dealing with any cost issues or whatever. And so when I returned to the bar, lots of and there was an ability for people to instruct me directly. I had a lot of people approaching me, can you carry on doing my case? Can you do my case you were doing before? And so I was dealing with everything about the case, which is quite unusual. Usually in England, people specialise in the preparation or in the presentation of the case, but I've done all of those things. Okay. And I'm just a curious person. I'm like, how is this done? And then I like to do it and find out. So that meant that that meant I've got a big overview of what it's like to work as a solicitor, what it's like to work as a barrister. And I suppose to a certain extent, having that overview made you then realise that there's got to be a better way. And as entrepreneurs, we all ultimately think that. We think, we look at a problem, we see it for what it is and sometimes when we're deep inside that problem whether we're a customer or whether we're a supplier we come to the conclusion mm, this could be done a lot better so you mentioned previously that you've got this idea for this cafe where people would drop in and basically talk about law or bits and pieces like that so when did the family law cafe as I know it now when did that start to take shape in 2012, I had that idea, you know, I'm sick to death of this, you know, such a wastage of money, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. My cousin was living with me, she had experience in events. And she said, the problem is, a lot of people just scared to come directly to a barrister, they feel, how could they explain their case, you know, to someone who's got that specialised knowledge, there needs to be something in between. And I thought that was very smart. And so I started working with her. She lived abroad, so she went back home. Then I worked with somebody else. And over two or three years, I was just evolving this idea. I had different names written. And, and then ironically, I came back, oh, Family Law Cafe. Wanted something that was friendly. It wasn't Family Law Pub, because sometimes pubs are not you know, not female friendly. Sometimes <laughs> they are, sometimes they're not. I say that because I grew up in a pub. I would say my father was a businessman from age 13, selling lino, market stalls, then carpet shops, then hotel, then restaurant, then riverside. So he was always, you know, I had that template of someone who made business by providing what people needed. And so it came back to Family Law Cafe. I thought that sounds friendly. I had lots of ideas about, I wanted to help people. I wasn't quite sure what I was doing with this, but I knew I wanted to help people. And it's I then met Carol and I said, look, I want someone that can execute these ideas. And 
I met her for coffee. She was like, I don't know, right? You know, this is for me. And I said, please don't talk yourself out of this. I know you're the person. And I was completely correct in that. I think when you have an idea about something, you just meet the people, you recruit them because I had so much in my head that I hadn't explained. There was so much behind this idea. And I launched it and the idea wasn't quite right or quite understood. I then had teamed up with someone from university who said, this is a really smart idea and we should make sure there's an online portal so everything's online. It's all in one place, a hub. We've got some investors in. So it was just having this idea, refining it and iterating it, trying this, trying that, trying this. And at first I was so terrified. I, I knew this was such a good idea that I thought, oh, if I tell anyone, then someone else will do it, which was kind of absurd because... Obviously, you need to kind of, most people would say, well, I get your website, but when I, when you help me, this is so much better than we understood. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I just didn't want to tell people in case they did it. I was scared. (laughs) I was learning. Well, you are (laughs) learning. I mean, the fact is, I can understand because I'm I'm still like that to a certain extent. I will, I will only allow certain things to go out on the basis that I know exactly what I'm doing with. I have loads of ideas very much like yourself. Mm -hmm. And there are loads of, even today, somebody uh, asked me from the States about a particular project that has just started and they're just working on. And they sort of like, they've given me this sort of form questionnaire thingy and they want me to sort of title segment that I'm going to supply for them. And I'm literally sitting there thinking, now I've got to do this now because if I don't do it now, the opportunity will dissipate. So mm-hmm. I can totally get that. You mm. you need to protect yourself in business to a certain extent. You can't mm. be too, too too laid back. You've got to have that thing of protecting your interest until you at least know it can work. Yeah, that's uh, um, so. I, I I would agree with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. So you've got <laughs> this idea. And mm. this idea is starting to it's starting to get legs. It's starting to move. Mm. Mm-hmm. So. You've got the family law cafe. You've ditched the idea that it is really a cafe. So you mm, yeah, that. That, that didn't last long. Because <laughs> I thought, why would I? Why would I then have a cafe where people would have to travel to? You know, all those. Let's have an online cafe. Exactly, I could see that. But uh, just the family law pub, I think at the end of the day, I think would turn, <laughs> th- that would have turned into EastEnders. I think. <laughs> get out of my pub. Yeah, yeah, that would be it. Yeah, get out of my pub. You say that for some people, no. Get out of a pub. Get out of a family law pub. <laughs> yeah, I could, I, I could see why that doesn't work. <laughs> got this idea. You've got Carol mm. on board. She's a bit reluctant mm. at first, but she says, you know, this oh, could yeah. be a runner. And she decides that she wants to get involved. So you're there now and you're basically moving mm. forward. So how do you start to let people know that you exist? Well, we started because... You know, we had this idea, we started literally word of mouth. And when I look back, we were so small, but we had such big ideas and we still have big ideas. But we, I think we always knew that we would only survive if we gave people exceptional service and just went the extra mile. And, you know, we've worked so hard. And now I realise that whole idea of oh if I put this out then someone else will do it well be my guest because (laughs) creating something new is 
it is such hard work and the, it's been we've been on a roller coaster you know you're you know you have your 8am calls with impossible investors and then they don't understand you have this you have that you just learn by doing and keeping on keeping on and we have a belief in what we do and over the years mm -hmm. it started very much as this is my idea carol and carol's like well i can never talk to lawyers to the fact of carol you know organizing stuff at the house of lords whatever she does and and it was become much more of an equal partnership we do swear a lot to each other and we we have no problem with that because we know that we are absolutely passionate about what we do and we've got different skills we try and stay in our own lane you know i try and do the stuff that i I'm good at she does stuff she's good at and peter who's our fellow director does stuff stuff he's good at and people that we have on our team we have a tight team but we're trying not to overlap and to give people ownership of what they do so you have to have a vision you have to have belief you have to have the right people that really believe in what you're doing and can take the heat i'll be honest with you Coming up with ideas as an entrepreneur is always literally the first step because the problem is, is that when you start to deal with people such as money men, venture capitalists, investments, etc, etc, it's when your idea, no matter how much you've commoditized it, gets reduced into how much money can somebody make out of it, as opposed to the belief that you have in what you're trying to do. Because... In terms of the Family Law Cafe, what I see is this idea where people are not going from pillar to post in order to achieve one aim. And I don't know if I'm reading that right because I've never used that service. But if somebody said to me, what do I think it means? That is what I would believe it to be. Yeah. I mean, we're, what we're saying is whatever your stage Whatever you are in your family law journey, and you might be just might have a hearing in a month, or it may be you're just thinking, should I separate? Come to us, let us have, we'll get an idea of what support you need, and we will give you a monthly fee, and then we will help you find all of the other experts that you may need at your choice who will work online with you, and you're getting a bespoke service and you're paying what you what is reasonable to pay so you have a base fee for our assistance for all the online assistance and the phone calls you need and then we are we have a big network so we are doing that work for you and because we're industry insiders we're not afraid to say let's say a clerk um, for a barrister we want to use says you know the fee is this we'll say well actually we think it should be something like this because we understand what work needs to be done so we can negotiate those fees in a way that people can't if they don't understand that industry you know it's difficult to go direct to barristers or to solicitors and negotiate your fee because you have no knowledge. So, you know, you're just going to have to more or less either accept what they say or walk away. And that's hard work. Of course. And you will end up spending more money. The Cash Flow Show, coming to you from the City of London. Real people, real business, real talk. Do you feel that when people come to you at the Family Law Cafe, they are concerned more about the fees than they are about the problem? Oh, I think they're really concerned about the problem and the fees are something they're really frightened about. 
a lot of people come to us and just say, I've already spent this. And we're like, oh, okay. There's a lack of knowledge. It's like going into a restaurant, you're getting the menu. Can you imagine looking down the menu and it'll be like halibut, two hours, two hours prep. If you ask any questions, 18 pounds a time. But you know, they're scared by the menu. So they might go, for example, to a solicitor who mm-hmm. they have a charging model, which is based on an hourly rate. I know I've, you know, had a firm been involved in a firm of solicitors and of course no criticism of that but it doesn't work for the public who want to know what is this going to cost me what is the outcome going to be they want as much certainty as possible whilst you can't be absolutely on the nail to the penny we know because we i've done it for 32 years and know what is a reasonable amount and people are often spending far too much and what's really harsh is they can get into a final hearing having spent loads of money and have a judge say goodness me you've spent far too much money as if they wanted to which is just (laughs) you couldn't make it up really uh so People are frightened of the situation they're in. They're frightened that the cost will escalate. And sometimes that will mean that we have people that just cannot move. And, you know, they've been two years. And I had a lady who said, it's taken me two years to get a divorce and this and this and this. And I set out, okay, this is how I see it going forward. But she was just too frightened to move forward. And as, you know, it happens quite often. As a result, people are frightened about the fees, but it costs them more because of that delay. And they're not getting anything. You know, you get people who are living on credit cards and you can see. And they're also fearful of conflict. Mm They're conflict averse. Of course they are. Everyone's, I mean, everything's terrifying, isn't it, about going through a divorce? Of course. It's all about trust. They need to understand that you are there for them, that you will let them know about fees, that you will be completely transparent and honest. And I'd say because we're very honest about fees, sometimes people say, oh, you know, it's going to be that much. And we say, yes, and we explain why. And absolutely, they get it. What is really difficult for people is that they will start with a professional and think the fee is going to be something and then realise that, oh, they've incurred all of these fees on letter writing or phone calls or emails, which they didn't really realise they were going to have to pay for. Mm. Indeed. Mm. It happens a lot. And I think that's the reason why I have some clients that are solicitors. And when their clients get the bill, Mm. the bill shock ensues. And (laughs) they then have to then come to me and say, well, how can you help us negotiate recovering this unpaid invoice? Because a lot of the time, people are completely unaware of how much it's going to cost. And I think... Even if you lose business because of it, transparency is so important because it protects your reputation in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I have sympathy for solicitors because they genuinely want to help and they're offering fixed fees when they can. But what we're doing, we're just doing something different. We're flipping it. We're saying, come to us. We'll work out the most cost-effective way to get to where you need to be. Obviously, it's your choice, but here's an example. I mean, one of our major investors, the reason he invested in us, he said, oh, I've been through two or three divorces. If I had known that it was about um, the wife's reasonable needs, that was the main thing. You know, I went through all of this, you know, a year of mounting fees and he wasn't an unreasonable person. He understood that he had to pay maintenance mm-hmm. and he 
could have sorted it out. So if he'd had an understanding of what was important to focus on and spend money on and what other things that are just not important, then the fees stay right down because you're not wasting your money on things that are just not going to make any difference. The general public, we just see people's emotions. And I think, in my opinion, and I'm not obviously a, a practitioner or a professional in this area, it seems to me that when I've seen people have been in those divorce stages, a lot of it is just driven by pure, raw emotion. Well, remember the phrase, when emotions are high, judgment is low. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so people are getting caught up. And also I'd add to that, um, if people come to us and they're all about, oh, I just want to do the other side over. I want to spend this amount. Sometimes they just want to show off. I've got the highest lawyer. I've, my lawyer is bigger than your lawyer. Well, that's fine, but we were probably not for you. You know, if you want to splash the cash to make yourself feel good, uh, to make your other side feel bad, just as so you can do it, but just know that you're doing it and you are doing it for that purpose. I don't think there's many people like that. Most people, we're probably for the middle market, the people who are sensible and think, I don't want to have an unfair settlement, but neither do I want kind of the other side to do anything that, you know, they shouldn't do. I want to, you know, protect them from themselves. I want a reasonable outcome. Most people recognise that. And it's important to have good advice because if you have poor advice, it's going to take you longer. It's going to be more expensive. People are going to get more upset. And I just don't understand why people would do it. And I don't think they want to. I think if they know, if they have trust and they know that you are there to protect them, and that's what we're doing. We're, as I say, we're flipping it. We're just there to get the best deal for the customer. So, you know, and we know the process and we know what they're likely to need so for example if you had a hearing in a few weeks i wouldn't bother with the solicitor because it's not going to make any difference let's get a barrister boom um mm -hmm. do you see what i mean get it done whereas done. if you were at a stage where you said definitely 100 percent don't want to go to court i you know i just go through the different options and i'm really really want to promote people using out of court options and they just don't do it enough and i think it's by pure lack of knowledge because the court system is very slow particularly at the moment and so i want to tell people inform them it's going to take you this amount of time so weigh that up can you get the other side to agree for example binding arbitration can you get a private um, hearing pay for the judge to do it there's so many options out there and that's really where you guys come in mm -hmm you know, to, mm -hmm. to, to your own and where you excel. Now, what I want to do is something slightly different. When you mention things like family law and divorce, there are lots of myths that go around. Mm -hmm. So I've written down a few myths and in as few words as you possibly can, try and see if we can extinguish, expel, and discard some of these myths that some of them are usually or heavily male influenced mm -hmm. myths that people have regarding yeah. uh, family and divorce situations. So for example, I read somewhere that women file for divorce 80% of the time. In your experience, is that the case? I think it's higher. Certainly under the old system, 90% of divorces at one stage were, you know, don't totally quote me on that because i'd have to see the updated but mostly women make decisions about relationships and that includes divorce mm -hmm. men tend to what we find with men tend to 
make that decision when they've got something else to move to. Right. Excellent. <laughs> What's commonly referred to on the internet as monkey branching, going from one relationship to, to another? Well, I think men, I'll put it another way. I think that women are more invested and thinking about the relationships. There will be men who say, I had no idea there was any problem. Mm. So maybe the wiring is a bit less complicated. They would just get on and say, okay, you know, things might not be perfect. Whereas I think women are, are generally thinking, hey, this is wrong, that's wrong. And it, they tend to initiate changes in relationships. Indeed. So another myth, prenups are worthless. No, the courts very much like prenups. The more certainty you can build in, the better, but they are evidential. So it's a very good idea to get a prenup. And I think there will be more of this. I had a couple of inquiries recently. You know, one was a, a young woman and the assets weren't high, but as she reasonably said, she had assets. You know, she was concerned that, that you know, they were at risk. Another is, you know, a more classic situation with two wealthy individuals later in life. So I would say always consider a prenup. Uh, obviously, the court, they're not binding in all circumstances, but they have high evidential value and may be decisive. Mm. As I said, I, I, th I think they're good ideas. Mm. I don't think they're bad things at all. I think if people can set out exactly where they are but it seems to be especially in celebrity situations where people tend to want to row back on their situation if their partner male or female becomes more successful than they originally were yeah i mean a prenup is going to be most effective if the parties both taken legal advice both made disclosure and circumstances have remained broadly similar and you remember you can always update a prenup in changes so the more specific it is and the more informed each party was i mean the courts i'll be honest with you love to have a reason not to spend more court time on, on things so if you've got a prenup then it's going to be the party saying well there should be something different that's going to have to show why the prenup is not uh, to be followed indeed mm. another myth women always get custody no it's a party that's been looking after the child so if there's a status quo whichever party has been looking after the child is likely to continue to do so but the court very much in favor of the child having a meaningful relationship with the other party and shared care is increasingly common and indeed i'd say that it's often the case that there might have been the mother looking after the children and the father who is at work will still get shared care. And it may not be a 50-50. So yes, many more children do live with their mothers, but that's because many more children are living with their mothers before the separation. So it's not a done deal. I do know that when mothers don't get custody, when they might be expected to, that's something that's, that's very difficult for them. Uh, so it's just so I, I don't it's not at all the case that they always get custody. it's very fact specific indeed so there's a lot of complaints from men that say I don't get to see my children but I'm paying maintenance or I'm paying alimony or whatever the case may be what do you say to that and what's the general rule of thumb I think it's wrong I'm going to say it I think it's wrong that issues of child maintenance 
are not seen as a factor in child arrangements. In other jurisdictions, they are. Um, I may be wrong because I was talking to the other day someone about this. I think in Scotland that can be brought in. Might might have the wrong jurisdiction. Not going to be held to that. But other jurisdictions allow that as part of um, behaviour. And why would you exclude that behaviour? Because if if a man is paying maintenance for a child, then that shows some commitment, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. If he's not paying maintenance, again, that shows that yeah, yeah. he doesn't really mind if that child doesn't have enough to eat. Yeah, lack of commitment. So I just think it's a relevant factor. Yes. And I can understand fathers being aggrieved that you have the child maintenance service to ensure they make payments. And then on the other hand, they can have a tough time in court for whatever reason on welfare issues being raised by mothers. But of course, they are two separate areas. Mm -hmm. But on one side, you have no discretion, effectively. Of course. And on the other side, then, um, and particularly because of the delays, men can be in the position that they're not seeing their child at all because of allegations have been raised and they haven't been investigated. And it may be 18 months down the road, then they are seeing their children because it may be those allegations haven't been proved or the court's taken a view that even if they are proved, then they they still should be seeing their child. And yet during that time, they've been committed mm. to making sure that payments are made, whereas they haven't got the joy of having spending time with their children and that can never come back for them. It's extremely tough. And the worst thing is, is the delay. Of course, of course, which broadens and widens the gap between the parent that's been distanced, for want of a better word, and their child. So that's understandable. And I think that's why there has to be more out-of-court initiatives. And, you know, the president has said they don't want so many child arrangement cases. Mm -hmm. So there really needs to be out-of-court initiatives so that the children are not suffering from not having a relationship with one parent when if the case was dealt with in a different way or more promptly then during that part of their lives they would have had the benefit of seeing both parents you have made it clear that you trained as a mediator and a family uh -huh. mediator and so did i so mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah people don't know that i like to keep that under my hat but one of the things that i noticed or was aware of over a period of time especially in enduring divorce cases what pe was people felt that mediation was a waste of time what are your thoughts mm. well one thing i'll say is whenever you say to people how about mediation i don't think i've ever not heard this answer which is oh she or he won't mediate. I'm like, do you know that? There's always an assumption. There's always a sort of suspicion. Yeah, but they won't. And if they will, it's, it's that, that suspicion. And, you know, one thing you could think about, people have to go to what's called a mediation information assessment meeting. But often that's a tick box exercise. So maybe one thought would be, unless there is um, a reason not to, for example, serious domestic violence or something like that, maybe it, maybe it should be a requirement that both parties must attend that mediation meeting together mm -hmm. and have the mediator explain and be given information about 
how much time it's going to take to have hearings or whatever so that that session they could perhaps see each other and just start breaking down some barriers because keeping lines of communications open is the surest way to success and keeping costs down it's not always possible but have a go at mediation. The government's promoting it. It has a mediation voucher scheme. They want people to talk. And of course, mediators are neutral. They are there to hear from both parties. It's tough because I I suspect people don't want to go to mediation because they think the other party will dominate, you know, will be able to get a better deal than them and maybe they just need to try it that's yes that's my two cents worth of maybe rather than each party having to go to a meeting on their own maybe they should be compelled to go to a joint meeting just to see if it works you know you never know i would agree with you but i think the problem is is that I think it's that fear of we might not really have a problem we have might have more in agreement than we have in disagreement. And then subconsciously, I think when people have got to that stage, they've hyped the situation up so much. Mm. They've told their friends, their family, the cat next door, anybody that will listen how terrible this person is. So for them to come back and then say, oh, we've settled it amicably now. This is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. It's taken all the drama out of it. Clayton, I have an idea. We need a television programme with a mediator and sharing what it's like and then maybe people will watch that as we watch crown court and say hey you know mediation that that works maybe people need to see it it's a great idea because people need to realize you know it's like that taylor swift song we are never ever getting back together Mm -hmm. you know you don't need to get back together the fact is is that what you need to do is to find the most efficient way of separating a trained mediator can extract from people and bring them to you know some sense of reality because when we've touched on this Mm -hmm. you know it's when the emotions are high because there are some couples who they have new partners they you know they get along and they're delighted that the old partner has a new partner and there's some couples who are not delighted so (laughs) there isn't one (laughs) there isn't one situation that is how family law is so different that what could be completely acceptable in one situation is not acceptable in another family true very true and people need that guidance and that hand-holding to say hey maybe there's another perspective maybe you know look at it another way and you know just going back to what we offer we're being objective we, we know what the system is we could get people different experts and it may be the expert they need is a therapist to just like spend time on themselves because yes very true it's all about how you react to things isn't it it's not really what the other side has done obviously if they've harmed the child that's a different matter but there's not many cases where that's really the case it's usually a difference in parenting um and it's usually a power struggle of course that's that's the biggest thing with all of these things it is a power struggle mm-hmm. and it then becomes who's going to come out on top which is then everybody ultimately gets damaged as opposed to you hope that with a mediator they would sit down and say well do you know something what's the best outcome for both of you what would you prefer to be the best outcome what would you like to happen mm. and many hundreds of thousands of people do this and some don't and 
what I think they need to sometimes they just get caught in in the argument and you know just need to step back and and, and have an overview definitely so we're going to move on swiftly now to a section that we call what are you like <laughs> where we talk about the things that when you're away from family law cafe and you have a little bit of downtime that you enjoy so everybody who's listened to the show before and if you're new to the show welcome uh, you will know that there is a pre-show questionnaire which everyone gets and that questionnaire's got it's lots of questions but lots of information but we ask a few questions one of the first questions we ask is what's your favorite book and i don't know if you remember what you've put but i've got here wuthering heights by emily bronte yeah i do remember and it I, it was great to just think about this because i, I love reading i was one of those kids you know read under the book covers with a torch and then used to read when i was walking along and literally walking to lampposts i'm just short-sighted because i'm always reading and you know just couldn't stop and i was probably reading a lot of stuff that nowadays would seem horribly unfashionable but you know just read all the Enid Blyde and everything else like that but Wuthering Heights I just remember just starting to read it probably early 20s I think I just lay in bed for two days and just read it it's just like it was so passionate so incredible and I had a fi slight fixation when I was younger about the Brontes and doing projects on them at school and whatever and you have to think about when they were living and the circumstances and where did that come from that mm -hmm. passion <laughs> it's like the most incredible book and <laughs> I, I need to reread it really and i spoke to my daughter she's like oh yes and everyone i speak to it's just that's the book maybe if i read it again i don't know if i'd see it in the same way but yeah we talk about family law and the passions and the dramas and it's just got it all hasn't it Indeed, indeed. So we're going to move on to your favourite business book, which is Fiona Harold, Be Your Own Life Coach. Mm. Well, you know, I chose that one because that's the book I read in 2012. I read it, I reread it, I read it, reread it. And there's lots of business books I've been reading in the last year or so where really in the last, it's only in the last year, I think I've stepped from being a lawyer to a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. A bit late in the day, I see my life as sport, overlap to law, law overlap to children, children overlap to business. And so I've read a lot of, loads of other stuff, you know, in the, in the last year. But that's the one that really got me started on thinking, well, I've had all this coaching for my sport and I've, I only succeeded because of that coaching, no doubt about it. And the, the better coaching I had, the better I did. And that's what got me started on the whole thinking of law as take it as a project, to try to give people coaching through it because a big aspect of what we're doing in Family Law Cafe is coaching people through it. I was told by someone I worked with, you know, you have strategy, you have good strategy, trying to strategize them through their case, coach them through it. And... I started doing the work from that book and I phoned them. I said, I want to have training with Fiona Howell. And at that time in 2012, there were all sorts of things going on in my life. And I remember them saying, from what you've told us, we think you need to, you know, have this first, have some 
counselling or whatever. <laughs> and they just kind of flat refused me. It was like, oh, okay. Because I was dealing with a lot at that time. I'd gone through a divorce and just things happening. Bless them for that because I would not have been ready to change myself and move into being essentially a different person at that time. But I went through that book two, three, four times, <laughs> totally dogged. I'm not even sure if I've got it still, but it's all in that book. And so much has come since then. But she was one of the first people to really go into life coaching. Uh, she explained how she changed her life. That was just my Bible. And it still stands out to me. It's a basic book. It's great. So then we go into your music selection and you've picked a, a few classics here mm -hmm. and i'll go through them one by one. First one is all night long lionel richie mm -hmm. classic party track this is the one that made lionel a superstar what what for you well that one is that one is in 1984 when i was at the olympics oh, that's yes. what was playing and he was there at the closing ceremony if anyone finds us on youtube at one stage everyone starts running around the track all the athletes we, we all went in and then we were standing there and Kate and I my friend we started running with the flag because it was kind of what people were doing after races started running around the track so everyone's following us it was kind of chaos and um, you know so they are running around the track and letting off steam and then after that we all you know, we were sitting there, Lionel was playing, we were dancing, the flame, and it just has that, oh, you know, I have goosebumps. It was, it was, that was a time. And I've been seeing him in concert and, and he's the man. Oh my God, it's just fantastic. So it has a big memory. <laughs> Excellent. You're, you're the second lady that I know who's a massive, I've got another friend who's a massive, massive Lionel Richie fan, <laughs> massive. So you've also got Jump by Van Halen, David Lee Roth, Eddie Van Halen at their commercial peak. Yes. So that is in 1986. I was at Commonwealth Games. Um, just that was just jump. That That's the song that we were all dancing to. And if there's something about that song, that it, I'm kind of known. Uh, I think that kind of sums me up. If people know me, I'm just going to jump. You know, why not? And just everything about that song just puts me in a good mood play it at my funeral, jump around, have a good time. I'm here, you know, for a good time. I'm here for doing stuff, energy, let's go, Van Halen, perfect. Love it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> now, we come back to another song, but we've come full circle because you've also got Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush. So you've got the book and you've got Kate Bush's um, interpretation with song and dance, um, massive, massive hit. Great, it brought a massive talent onto the world who is now experienced even renewed success with running up that hill, going number one all over the world via Stranger Things. So is, is there a synonymous reason for you to like both Wuthering Heights, the book and the recording? She's just brilliant, isn't she? She's genius. And she was so young when she wrote all that stuff with her brother. They're just pure genius. It's something, again, that song encapsulates that book so brilliantly. Mm. It's stunning. She's a stunning artist. She is so talented. The originality of what she was doing. You know, you think about... You think about male artists like, you know, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, whatever, 
this is a female artist doing this. I think she was like 16 years old. Completely brilliant, original. You know, again, where did this come from? A bit like the Brontes. Where did this come from? So I love the book and I love the song. And the song absolutely sums up the originality and passion of the book. I remember when Wuthering Heights first came out yeah. and it was just like, wow, where is this? She's This woman's an alien. Where's she landed from? Yeah. Which is really how music is supposed yeah. to make you feel. Um, I got to admit, I wasn't necessarily a massive fan of the music at the time. I didn't think she was quite gorgeous, actually. I still think she's a very attractive woman. But I think at the same time, as time has gone on, I did appreciate how clever she was. Yeah. Very, very clever. And she's, she had a lot of problems actually getting her vision to be respected by a very male-dominated industry that couldn't seem to see her vision. I mean, even that song that she has, Running Up That Hill, the actual song is called A Deal With God. Mm. And she, she said, I've written this song, you know, we, it's on the album, we're going to put it out. And they say, uh, no, I don't think so. You've mm. got to change the title. She goes, what are you talking about? That's the title, mm. it's A Deal With God. And she says, well, you know, uh, what can I do? And they said, well, you do realise if it's got God in the title, you are going to have problems in America. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why don't you just call it running up that hill? And if you want to put a deal with God in brackets, you know, and she went away, thought about it and thinking, am I compromising my integrity or my artistic integrity? And I'm glad she was smart enough to, to actually work on that compromise. Because I think, you know, for her, that was just a massive record. And even now, you know, 30-something years later, still a massive record for her. Yeah, I mean, I think what you said at the beginning was absolutely correct. When it came out, we were like, what? You know, what is this? And she had a lot of flack. She was completely different. And, and people didn't recognise. She was ahead of her time. Way ahead. And, you know, people so ahead of her time, people have just caught up with her. Maybe, you know, now I love people that bring something completely new i love to see genius i don't care what i said i'm you know, watching football watching anything when you see genius at work i just love to see that and i'm with you that i liked it at the time but there was a lot of like what sort of this miming and <laughs> people were able to be really critical but and i know i think i'm right and maybe wrong in this but I think I'm right that she then found it difficult to tour it must have been incredibly tough it was but her artistic integrity is intact I think she's quite an introverted person she is really an artist mm. in that sense mm. and I think the way that she was expected to generate this commercial we go back to our original conversation commoditizing mm. her art for sales, especially, you know, she was always that one album away of being dropped because it didn't sell enough records. But the problem is, is that people have supported it and her fans, who are very, very varied, have really been dogged in supporting her and the work that she's done. And as you said, yeah, she, you know, touring and stuff like that really wasn't for her. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that she wanted to do. And I suppose she's been able to control her life and just even just to pick up and walk away from mm -hmm. music yeah and just be a mum she's done very 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 well and what I like about her is from a business aspect of it he's her ownership of her work exactly 
which is have uh, been absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So we're going to rush through quickly with your last um, the film selection. You've got mm-hmm. Amadeus. I think the film is called Yol. Is that right? Which is mm. a, a very interesting film. Um, I'll, I'll concentrate on that one, which is basically, if I read this correctly, five Kurdish prisoners are granted one week's home leave. They find to their dismay that they face continued oppression outside of prison from their families, the culture and the government. What made you pick this one? This is a film that my uh, my former husband introduced me to. We watched it. We just fell in love that we watched this film. Um, we were married within a few weeks. <laughs> I was just like dating him, you know, it's like having fun. And it just is, it's a film, the, uh, I'll get the name wrong so you can, anyone can check it later, but it was banned in its own country. Um, the director made it when he was in Switzerland. He's Turkish. And it's incredibly political, it's intense. Everyone loves stories that there's something else to them. And then you have one of the it's stories about these prisoners and they are in they're on release from prison for the weekend and the stories that happen to them and how they're all victim of their circumstances and the effect on others. And it's incredibly moving. Um it's not a mainstream film. It's the most brilliant film I've ever seen uh, because of the intensity. And again, it comes from genius. It comes from genius. And when you see a piece of art that way that touches you, then, yeah, that, it's unforgettable. Uh, and my, my son's a film actor now. He wow. knows everything about films. And my, um, you know, his father was very into films and, and we would sit there because I'd mm-hmm. done so much training for my sport and, you know, didn't really watch a lot of films or TV because I was always training, doing this, doing that. Uh, it was a film he introduced me to, just remarkably intelligent film. And very moving and there is a scene where the the wife has transgressed and so she is held across the mountains in snow and the husband goes over and they walk home he is allowed to release his wife and they walk home in the snow and I'm not even going to spoil the film if anyone's listening just try and watch his film and <laughs> If you if you're not moved, you're a stone. <laughs> it's it's a very oh emotional, um, intense film, and where people are doing their best in difficult circumstances. I suppose put it that way. Okay, thank you. Also, you, uh, to finish off that section, you've mentioned The Godfather. Mm-hmm. And mm, The Godfather is a legendary film on the Cash Flow Show because it gets mentioned so many times. Mm. It really is the film for entrepreneurs for some strange reason. <laughs> um, but it is. It just, it, the amount, if you go through all the episodes, it's the film that comes out on top every time. Well, I suppose it has a resonance for me because, you know, uh, my name is Toch. That comes from Tochi. Um, if my great-grandfather was an Italian immigrant, you know, they couldn't spell. So it would be Torch, Torch, Touch. Uh, my grandfather was a hawker. We just go, well, he, so my great grandfather then 
had a barrel organ and he'd sold ice cream and he his wife was from a poor house. I mean, we were talking people who just got on the boat and came to England and made their way. He then had 12 children. One was my grandfather, who then was a hawker, would go around selling things, selling lino. My father didn't really have any education. He was evacuated in the war. He then worked on market stalls and made his way. And, and so that is that Italian background mm-hmm. and, um, or, you know, sort of grew up with all sorts of stories of how, you know, this big South London family and, you know, were kind of made their way in life. So there's a little bit of kind of the Italian connection, but um, certainly not any, any sort of um, connection in terms of uh, doing things in a criminal way, but they were doing things in a way to survive and so, but that film, the, the series of films, obviously, again, is the filmed, the acting, the story. There's an intensity that comes, again, it's a piece of slice of genius, isn't it? Indeed. So you can't fail to be moved by it. And it's about, I think, maybe why people like it. It is about, I suppose it's about making deals and, you know, getting on. Uh, and then obviously coming from a situation where things are, um, you know, perhaps they, I think this, the story is really, isn't it? They, they're then becoming um, legitimized and going to the top and all of the struggles there are. So, yeah, it's a good, cracking story and a great film. Indeed. So I'm going to ask a very few brief mm. quickfire questions. And one of the ones is, if one of your cases gets turned into a movie, who would you choose to play you? <laughs> oh, well, if we're going lookalikes, <laughs> there, 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 well, there's an actress, oh, I haven't seen her for a while, um, it's called Greta Scarchi. Ah, right. Sometimes I've, you know, I've done things where people have been on screen and people are or they've seen her and they've contacted me next day and say, are oh, you really, you know, you're so alike and we physically look alike. Or my mother used to say, oh, you look a bit like oh, Nicole Kidman, just got that kind of look. Yeah. We might have to have um, Meryl Streep, she's a very good actress, she can seem to do anything. So, yeah, you take a pick of those exceptional actresses. Not to get Greta back because I'm interested in her because she... I like the fact that she used to do films where she was seen as a sort of the glamour side and then she never went down the plastic surgery route or anything like that. She just kept to being herself. And I'd like to see her back doing, and she's done a few, you know, quite serious films. So let's get Greta back. We're, she's a lookalike and she's a great actress and she's not gone down the, the Hollywood route. And I respect that. Cool. Excellent. So we've come to the end of our time here on the Cash Flow Show. You've been absolutely wonderful answering all these questions from left, right and centre. I'd like to finish up and find out if you have any plans for the future of the Family Law Cafe and which ones you can share with us. I think we've got to a stage. It's just about getting ourselves known more. It's all about marketing. We've got a system of how we do things. We want to serve more people. We want to become a brand so that we we do what we're doing. 
but we do it with more people because we love what we do. We want to bring on more people in our team working in the same way and give people that choice. We always say, you know, if we have 1% of the market, we'd be absolutely delighted. Some people want to use the traditional route with solicitors or barristers, but some people, and I hope those are the ones that come to us, think, I want to make a choice and I want to make decisions myself. Uh, and those are the people we want. So just more numbers, just keep doing it. Love what I do and just want it to be a brand. That's what we love. So how can people contact you? Do you have any preferred methods of people reaching out to you? If you Google Family Law Cafe, you're going to you know, get to our website. It's got a phone number there. We're on all social media channels. So just put in Family Law Cafe. You will find us very easy these days, isn't it? Just familylawcafe.co.uk is the website and Family Law Cafe on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Just get in touch. We've got a very, we've got a great phone number. I always like is o two o three nine o four o five o six. So uh, call us, email us, info at familylawcafe.co.uk. Just reach out to us. And if you're not sure, you know, just give us a call. We're not going to charge you for just listening and you making an inquiry. You know, and we'll only help you if we think we can help you. Brilliant, Joanna Touch. Family Law Cafe, it has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> I'm going to say goodbye for now and then play out with our outro. And thank you very much and look forward to seeing you again. Clayton, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I hope to see you soon. Most definitely. We've come to the end of the cash flow show for today, but I would like to say thank you to our guests for taking the time to share their knowledge, wisdom and insight. If you loved what you've heard on this week's episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and leave a five star review and feedback as it really does help. Whilst you're there, listen to some of our other episodes, which you are bound to enjoy. We want to make this the go-to podcast for entrepreneurs wherever they are in the world. And spreading the word really is the best way to grow our show and our community to achieve greater things. Be sure to join us next time for Real People, Real Business, Real Talk. Real talk.